On a beautiful Saturday afternoon in the late 2000s, I walked onto a sports field to deliver a devotional for a soccer ministry at the church I was serving. Right before the game started, a group of about 34-year-olds sat down together on the grass. When you are talking with a bunch of excited little kids, you've got about 10 seconds to get their attention. So as soon as I sat down with them, I yelled out, Hey, are any of you perfect? One little boy immediately, enthusiastically raised his hand. Ooh, ooh, I am, I am perfect. There's always one in a crowd. And I was just about to segue into the next part of my devotional about how we all make mistakes when I saw an itty-bitty four-year-old boy reach out and gently put his tiny hand on his friend's arm. No, he said quietly and sweetly. You know that's not true. You know it's not. No one is perfect, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <laughs> I was stunned. Out of the mouths of babes, indeed. In case you're not sure, that is a perfect quote from our scripture today. In Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A clergy colleague once told me that if I would ever like to see a bunch of people squirm, just mention one word, sin. Now, I am definitely not into making people squirm, but if we look around at the world, if we pay attention to just about any interaction that we have, if we are brave enough to look deep into ourselves, we will see the reality of our imperfection. So why do we so very much dislike considering what is broken in us. Jesus didn't come to earth just because we're all a bunch of perfect people who he thought it might be fun to hang around with for a while. Now I know that may sound a little bit snarky, but there was something far more important going on. Jesus came because we were desperately stuck and we needed something earth-shaking to break us out. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul writes. But in our scripture passage today, Paul's description about the depth of our sin seems a bit harsh, don't you think? He says that everyone, everyone has turned their back on God with foul talk, lying tongues, venom dripping from their lips, rushing to commit murder, trailing destruction and misery in their wake with no peace in their souls, no fear of God. Whoa, Paul, chill out. I mean, have we all turned our backs on God? Well, does every action that we take take us closer to God? Or do we do things that take us in the opposite direction? Do we always make the healthy decision? Do we, without fail, follow Jesus' command to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength? Or does our focus wander from God to more earthly, more pressing demands? Do we, without fail, love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Or do the decisions we make more often have a benefit just for us or for ours? Do our mouths drip venom? I mean, that's just gross. But do we consistently, always, without fail, use our words, spoken or written, in a way that is healing and helpful? Or, as Paul claims, are our mouths full of ara and picria? Ara, it's a Greek word that can mean either a prayer or a curse. Here, 
it's a curse. And picria, harshness, bitterness. Could the words that we use each day be characterized as prayers or curses? Do our words demonstrate the sweetness of God's love or the bitterness of a broken world? Do we rush to commit murder? I mean, truthfully, Lord, I hope not. But that particular verse in Greek is actually, swift are their feet to shed blood. How often do our words or actions wound another, perhaps not physically, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally? How do we do harm to those around us by action or inaction? Do we have peace in our spirits? That's that lovely Greek word again that we talked about last week, Ivorne, peace that is a restoration of brokenness. Are we unswervingly, unfailingly seeking healing, doing the hard work of authentic caring, or are we stuck in our brokenness, resigned and resentful? Now, for over a year here at First Coral Gables, I've gotten to know many of you pretty well, and I can say confidently that you are amazing people, kind and generous, giving and committed, compassionate and curious, and it is an honor to serve here as your pastor. But I can also say with a high degree of confidence that I'm pretty sure that none of you would put your hand up like that funny little boy if I asked if any of you was perfect. If I asked you to put your hand up if you never made mistakes, if you never did what you shouldn't have done or didn't do what you should have. If in every conversation, every interaction, your words were always healing, or if sometimes you caused pain inadvertently or on purpose, if you always made the right choices, the righteous decision. I don't think that any of you would raise your hand high in the air if I asked you if your words and actions are always, without variation, words and actions that Jesus would have said and done. And I don't imagine that any of us would say that the world around us is what Jesus would desire for us either. Verse 20 of our scripture today says this, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Now on its surface, that sounds like a hopeless statement. Knowing how broken we are, knowing how broken our world is and being powerless to do anything about it. But hold on, my friends, because the truly the news is good. In the Gospel of Mark, the very first words that we hear from Jesus' lips were these. The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. The first part of proclamation has two declarative statements. The promised time has arrived and the kingdom of God is right around the corner. Jesus is announcing a new reality. The second two statements are prescriptive actions. Because of this new reality, this is what we need to do, repent and believe. In the New Testament, there are two main Greek words that we translate as repentance, metanoia and metamelomai. Metamelomai means to feel concern, regret, emotional remorse, to be sorry. 
Metanoia comes from two words, meta meaning to change and noeo to think. Metanoia means to have a change in the way that we think, to have a transformative change of heart, to change one's mind and subsequently one's actions. Both metamelomai and metanoia, there is knowledge that something is not right, that something is not healthy, that something is out of line with God's will for our lives. In metamelomai, that knowledge, though, is where it ends, feeling bad that things aren't the way they should be or the way they could be, but a resignation that it's just the way it is. Metamelomai is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. Understanding what is wrong, what is broken, what is damaged is not enough. We have to be willing to change. God doesn't want us to be stuck in our brokenness. God wants healing in our lives. Metanoia takes that knowledge and moves it into action. Things aren't the way they should be or the way they could be, and that means something needs to change. Metanoia, one of my favorite Greek words. But in addition to repent, Jesus also said believe. That word in Greek is pisteo, and it's not just an intellectual belief, it's confidence, faith. It is a deep, steady, profound trust. But if it is true what Paul says that no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands, then how exactly does repenting and believing work? Well, there's a story that I heard many years ago about a man who was brought in front of a judge. His crime was obvious, the facts undeniable. He did it. He was guilty. But as the judge heard the man's story, what had driven him to the crime, the judge felt incredible compassion for the man. After the attorneys had concluded their cases, the judge looked at the man and declared his punishment. He would have to pay a fine of $1,000. The man broke down crying. He was completely broke and there was no way of paying that amount. He was going to jail. The judge wrapped his gavel, ending the proceedings. And then the judge stood up, took off his robe, grabbed a pen, walked down the steps to the weeping man, and he pulled out his wallet and a check, and he wrote out the amount of the fine and handed it to the attendant. You are free to go, sir, the judge said. Your fine is paid in full. Now, I don't know if that actually happened, but I have to say that I really, really really hope it did, because it is a wonderful illustration of what God does for us in Jesus Christ, the judge paying the price for the offender. In the covenant, the contract, the promise between God and humanity, it is humanity that is turned away, not God. It was us who walked away from the terms of the contract, not God. We're the guilty party, the ones who broke faith. And here's where hopelessness could easily set in. No human being could ever be good enough to set it right again. No human is capable of bridging the gap between where we are and where we should be. We couldn't. We can't. But God loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness, in the hopelessness of our inability to fix what's broken in us and in our world. Humanity, we couldn't do it. We can't do it. And God knows that. And so God, 
the divine, became human to pay the price for us. Jesus, the Son of God, became Emmanuel, God with us. He became human. He experienced human joys, human pains. Jesus knows what it's like to be us because he has been us. The Son of God, fully divine, became fully human, teaching and healing and challenging. And then as the culmination of his message and ministry went to a cross, for us, to heal our brokenness, to offer us forgiveness, to save us. And that is the good news in which the Apostle Paul has put his full trust. This makes it possible for the same man who wrote, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the, what the law commands, to write this to the Church of Rome at the end of chapter 8. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? For as the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day, we are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is as if we had stood in a courtroom at the defendant's table, aware that the evidence against us was insurmountable, knowing that the verdict was not going to be in our favor. And then, seeing the judge walk down off the bench, take the file of evidence against us, and then in big, bold letters writing across it, case dismissed. God loves you. Not because God isn't aware of how you've screwed up, how you've failed, how you've occasionally completely fallen on your face. Not because God doesn't know about your sins, your mistakes, both big and small, that you have made. So have a change in your thinking and believe. God just loves you. God loves you not because of your victories, your successes, the work you've done. Not because God isn't aware of your accomplishments and your hard work and sacrifices. So have a change in your thinking and believe. God just loves you. Everything, everything in the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus is proof of that love. And nothing, nothing can ever separate you from God's love found in Jesus Christ because Jesus gave it all for you. Period. End of sentence. Done. 
case dismissed. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? Or persecution or famine? Or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all the things we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. We are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you.